As a kid growing up, we all hear stories. Incredible stories, superhuman stories. Stories that impact us of moments where lives are changed forever because of a sacrifice or an instance where somebody intervenes or steps in. I grew up much like you hearing stories. A few weeks ago when my wife Stacy and I were on our anniversary trip on the East Coast, we went to the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And a story that I had heard growing up as a kid developed new life for me. As I walked through all the memorials, thinking about the sacrifice of the countless men and women who have gone before us to fight for liberty, freedom, justice. And as I'm thinking about how it impacted my life and the changes, we come to the Vietnam Memorial. Some of you, many of you in fact, have been there and you've remembered. And what was interesting to me is that it was quiet. There was no signs asking people to respect it or to be quiet. It was just that as you walked by, there was noise all around, but as you walked through this memorial, it was silent. People reflecting. And I looked at the book of the names, the countless names that are on the wall represented, the stories that are represented, and a story came flooding to my mind about a man who in 1970, three months after being deployed, one year after being drafted into the United States Army, a 26-year-old man who's a husband and a father of two, a 26-year-old man who was two years into his college career at Portland State University, went like many other men before him and women before him to the post office and registered for the draft. When the lottery came, his number came up and he went like many before him as well and he enlisted in the U.S. Army and there he was shipped off to Georgia and then to New York where he received special training in reconnaissance, special forces. Three months after being deployed to Cambodia, there with his entire platoon, they are given directives from the top down to go in and to collect information about the enemy. And he and his platoon, in the darkness of night, set out foot on a country, a soil that is unfamiliar to them. They come under enemy fire. And not just any kind of enemy fire, but enemy fire from all sides. They are literally pinned down and, 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 and trapped. And in one moment, in one moment, without concern for himself, his safety, his welfare, this man asked his other friends, his brothers at arms, for them to give him their grenades. And he took their grenades and he said, I want you to give me cover fire. And what he did as they were pinned down is his company opens up cover fire and he takes these grenades and he takes his assault rifle and he begins to make his way some uh, distance from the rest of the platoon that had been pinned down, crawling through the darkness of the night. There he pulls the pin on these grenades and he stands up and he begins to lob the grenades and opens fire, attracting all attention to himself. And in that moment, in one moment, his body was riddled with the bullets of the enemy, even a mortar that cost him his life. And as I saw his name there in the books inscribed on the wall, my mind is flooded to the moment in time where I've heard this story countless times, countless times, countless times. 
And I made a phone call because I wanted to be sure that what I was reading was accurate. But what I found out was that that night, June 3rd, 1970, without regard for his wife at home or his son at home or his daughter at home, without regard for his future, this 26-year-old made a sacrifice that day. And every single person from his platoon is alive today to talk about it. One man, one choice, one moment, one sacrifice changed the trajectory of every other man in his platoon. They all lived to talk about his heroics. The reason that this story is significant to me, church, as many of you here know somebody or you were yourselves involved in the the Vietnam conflict, I'm here to talk about it today because of this man's sacrifice. You see, the image on the wall that's going to come up now is a picture of Dale Arthur Anderson. That's my grandfather. And as I read on the wall and I began to talk to my dad, I said, Dad, tell me again. Tell me what he did. I remember the story as a kid, but he said, rather than tell you, I'm going to send you some things. And so my dad sent me nine images Letters from the State Department, letters from the Secretary of Defense, letter from the Army, and multiple newspaper clippings that outlined in detail. But not only that, as I was preparing this week for this message, thinking about one moment that can change the world, how for us, when we think about one, it seems like such an insignificant number, but I want to argue with you that I believe that one moment can change the trajectory of someone's life, not only their life, but when Jesus steps into that moment, it can change the trajectory of their eternity. And as I, as I listened to this, I was talking to my dad even again yesterday about this, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't have the facts wrong or that I would, uh, couldn't embellish at all. And I read the newspaper articles, and then I, I went and I looked at a memorial that they have for him on, on, on our website, the interweb, our website, me and Al Gore. <laughs> and as I clicked on these comments, there are countless comments from his brothers at arms that were in the trenches taking enemy fire that are alive today to talk about my grandfather's heroics. And my father and my brother and others, and I read these stories, and so here's what I know about his his story. Listen to this. These are just some of the accolades. Died June 3rd, 1970, three months after being deployed, a part of the 25th Infantry Division, 2nd Battalion, 12th Infantry E Company in Cambodia on a reconnaissance mission, him and others from the Special Forces. He was awarded the National Defense Service Medal. He was awarded the Combat Infantry Medal. He was awarded the Vietnam Campaign Medal. He was awarded the Vietnam Service Medal. He was awarded the Purple Heart from being wounded in battle. He was awarded the Silver Star of Valor for distinguishing himself in bravery in battle. And he was awarded the Bronze Star of Valor for his heroic achievements. Eight years before I was born, This man made a sacrifice that changed the trajectory of my father's life, my aunt's life, my grandmother's life, which has had a direct impact on my life and my children's life. And it was in one moment that he saved countless lives, not just his brothers at arms that were in the foxhole with him, but the families of their families that were impacted. And I wonder, I just wonder for a moment, when we allow ourselves to to step into the story of our lives that God has already written and impact us in one moment, how God might use you to have an impact in someone else's life. Today we're going to read a story of this very moment, a very moment in which Jesus steps in, in time, 
and transforms not only a life, but a community. And I would argue that in large part, we're here to talk about it today because of men like this and the movement of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, let me invite you to raise your hand. One of our ushers is eager uh, to bring you a Bible, and these Bibles are our Bibles that we give to you to keep. We would love to have you come each week prepared with your Bible so that you can uh, write in them, you can take down questions you have. Uh, let me tell you something that just, just off cuff really quick that excites me. This week I had a meeting on Friday morning at 7 a.m., with a group of our leadership team, our elders and some of our pastors on staff, we went to the booming metropolis of Family Fair. And while we were there in Family Fair eating uh, their version of breakfast, I sat there and a group of six students, uh, about half of them represented in our youth group and the other half not, were sitting at a table, two tables over, opening the very Bibles that we just gave out and were doing a devotion. So that's really cool to see how these students are taking the Bibles and using them and building community, uh, even for their own group. I, I applaud our youth workers and our, our youth group. Good job, guys. Mark is found, if, you, if you're looking for Mark still, you can either go to the table of contents in the beginning and it'll give you a page number for Mark or flip your Bible halfway to the middle or to the middle halfway through the Bible. Start going to the right and you'll run into a collection of names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're gonna be in the gospel of Mark chapter five. Let me pray as we start this off. Father, thank you for you. Thank you for the power of one moment. Thank you for what you did already this morning at our church. Thank you for how you have already gone before us to prepare our minds to encounter your word this morning. And I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be holy to you, Lord, that we would be pleasing to you. Father, I pray that you would redeem this time for your glory and change our lives. God, we invite you again to meet us where we're at and take us where you want us to go. We pray in your name. Amen. If you're new here, I want to welcome you. My name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And I want to tell you just a little bit about how we do things typically on a Sunday morning. We like to read the Bible verse by verse. And so we're going to go through, and we're going to do that today. And I'm just going to share some insights that we've come up with, some things that I think the Lord has revealed to me this week, and, 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 and how I think they impact us and change our lives. But I also believe in, in, in sharing context and culture. Because the more that we understand context and culture, the better we are able to understand and apply the word of God to our lives. So let me just set the stage quickly as we jump into Mark 5 with a little bit of the backstory. Jesus' public ministry is just kicking off. He's starting to grow in notoriety and in popularity by his miracles, his signs, and his wonders. Word is spreading like wildfire about who Jesus is. And he's teaching in towns, in synagogues, in temples, in the streets even on mountainsides, and people are starting to come from all over different regions. They want to see Jesus for themselves and hear Jesus with their own ears. What happens then is that as large crowds gather around Jesus, it makes it more difficult to travel, to move about, and to share to larger audiences. So his disciples very pragmatically say, hey, Jesus, we should step into this boat. We should push off several yards from the shoreline and then allow the people to come down to the shoreline and it will act as a natural amphitheater and will allow you to speak to larger audiences without being crowded. Jesus and his disciples begin to teach this way. They're in a boat. Jesus is sharing, and there Jesus tells his disciples, he says, guys, I want you to pull up the anchor, and we're going to head to the other side of Galilee. We're going to go from the, 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 the west side, and we're going to head to the east side of Galilee. 
His disciples listen to him and they pull up anchor and they begin this journey throughout the night. As they're on their way in Mark 4, a crazy storm comes up. Tornado-like winds come up. Jesus is asleep at the back of the boat. The boat starts kicking and rocking about. Water starts to spill in the sides of the boat. The wind is pushing it all over the place. The disciples begin to bail water, panicking for their lives, looking at each other as to to try to figure out who's going to do what next to save us. They run to the back of the boat and they say to Jesus something along the lines of, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? Jesus, just waking up from his nap, gets up and he speaks directly into the situation. And he speaks this word, peace. You see, Jesus, Jesus has a way of speaking directly into our circumstances and speaking peace over us. In the middle of life's storm, Jesus speaks peace and the wind dies down and these men look at each other and they look at Jesus, they look at each other, they look at the storm, they look at Jesus, they look at each other and they say, wow, that's really cool. They get to the east side of Galilee, to the Gerasene community, the Decapolis, Deca meaning 10, Opolis being a community. This is a collection of Gentile communities. This is the first story recorded in scripture of Jesus performing a miracle amongst the Gentiles. Significant. What that means is that the Gentile people who are outcasts socially and religiously from the Jews, specifically the Hellenistic Jews, have never seen the likes of Jesus or heard the likes of Jesus or even experienced the likes of Jesus. So when Jesus shows up on the scene and his boat docks on the side of their, of their shoreline, there he is in the Decapolis, a region of 10 Gentile communities. He steps out of the boat onto the Gerasenes' land, And we're going to pick up the story now after Jesus calms the storm and speaks peace into a tumultuous situation. We pick up Mark chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. We're going to read and we're going to stop and we're going to observe some things as we go. So they, the disciples, arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the cemetery to meet him. Take note of where he comes from, the cemetery. The man lived among the burial caves. Take note of the fact that it's described as him living there. The man lived among the dead. The man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. I understand that problem. (laughs) Day and night, he wandered senselessly without direction. He wandered among the burial caves. He wandered among the dead and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Jesus is about to rock their worlds in more than one way. And it starts by Jesus showing up on the scene. Several things culturally that we have to grab a hold of so that we understand the significance of what Jesus is prepared to do, what Jesus is about to do, and what this community is going to experience. Number one, this is a Gentile community. Jesus is a Jew. Any God-fearing Jew uh, culturally would have nothing to do with Gentiles. 
They certainly wouldn't step foot onto Gentile soil. Number two, ceremonially, even uh, you look at the Levitical laws, the Mosaic laws, you look at culture and religious laws, an individual who had any contact with the dead was considered ceremonially unclean. And they couldn't have communion with others in the community because they then are at risk of, 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 of tarnishing others. If an unclean person were to touch somebody else, they then become unclean, which means that they're recognized as unclean throughout the community, and they are no longer able to worship freely in the community of others. They have to go through a bunch of religious exercises and a time frame set in the Levitical laws that would keep them from worshiping in the temple or amongst others for a period of time. So Jesus, first of all, steps onto Gentile soil. Number two, Jesus steps into the situation of a man who is unclean. Culturally, he's unclean. Spiritually, he's unclean. Physically, he's unclean. And he's unclean in more than one way. He's unclean because he runs around naked. Now, we would all agree that even today, if you were to run around naked out in Blair, that's weird. It's no different. In fact, it's still illegal today as it was then. This man is not in his right mind. So he's mentally unclean. He's physically unclean. But there's a third thing that takes place that you have to understand the context and the culture too as well, which you'll see again after this story when Jesus steps into a situation where a woman had been subject to bleeding for 12 years and nothing about human medicine could heal her. And Jesus heals her in a moment. Is that when you come into contact with human blood, You're considered unclean. This man was cutting himself with sharp stones, objects, defiling his body. He's considered unclean in every way. And then you're going to see in a moment how pigs, which amongst Jews are considered filthy, unclean animals. And you're not supposed to have anything to do with pigs. So Jesus then steps into an incredible situation that is going to have significant impact on his reputation. Keep hold of that. Keep hold of that, please. It's important as we read along. This guy, in his circumstances then, it's also important that we understand something. It says that he comes, he sees Jesus, and he's living amongst the tombstones. There would have been hillsides that would have been dug into and carved out of, and there would have been multiple gravesides dug into the side of, of a hill which is where there would have been a ceremony that took place, an embalming process that would have gone on, anointing with oils and incense, uh, or wrapping with burial cloths that would have taken place, and they would have put this person, their dead loved one, into a, 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 an area because that's where the dead go. That's where life is no longer present. You see, the thing that's important that we understand is this man, in his mind and in his body, chose to live amongst. In other words, he was more comfortable living amongst the dead than he was in the community of the living. Not only that, but he was an outcast. He wasn't welcome in community. They tried to bind him with shackles and chains in a community of the dead. And I just wonder how many of us 
in our darkness and in, our, in, in, in the recesses of our mind and in the recesses of our lives, choose all too often to live in death. Even though we know life is over there, even though that we know we can be delivered from darkness into light, from death into life, we have become comfortable in our confines. We remain shack, uh, shackled and chained, living in death. Instead of choosing life, we know that it's there, but we choose to walk around in the recesses of death. Because it's what we know. It may not be the best, but it's what we're familiar with. This man comes from a community like that. He comes from an area like that. Verse 6. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man, and I want you to highlight that word man. Because it's going to speak to his identity in just a moment. The man saw him and he ran to meet Jesus. And he bowed lower before him. This isn't because he's surrendering his life to Jesus. This is a sign of authority, and he recognizes Jesus' authority over him. Verse 7 says, with a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Which theologically, we have to talk about this for a moment because when you understand what this is now doing, it's called prevenient grace. I'm going to speak to that in a minute. It'll rock your world. This man, in the middle of his darkness, in the middle of his death, amongst the tombstones, where he has scarred his body and he lies there naked, searching for any hope, howling at the darkness of the night, climbing from hillside to hillside, looking for one answer after another. In this moment, he is able to silence the demons. He sees Jesus. He sees in the darkness a glimmer of hope. You see, that's what Jesus does. In a moment, Jesus steps into darkness and he presents light. And we go from one empty tombstone after another looking for answers. But in a moment when Jesus steps in, if we run to that light and we encounter Jesus, it can change our lives forever. This man runs before Jesus and he bows down and there the demons take over. They say, why are you interfering with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? But check out the authority that is at play here. I want you to get this because demonic possession, demonic uh, depression, and demonic oppression is a real thing. It's not just something made for cartoons. It is something that is active and alive. In fact, the word of God says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the demons, the spiritual forces of this dark world. We've got to be aware of, of this, that it's real. It's around us. It's all around us. But that shouldn't scare us. What we're going to read here in just a moment is that these demons, while they're unleashed, they're put on a short leash. These demons recognize God. These demons know who God is. These demons were created by God originally in heaven as angels who entertain, God entertained angels and then and, and there. They became too big for their britches, theologically speaking, and chose to fall with Satan himself, Lucifer. They fall from heaven into earth. They choose death over light. They choose darkness over light. They choose an eternity of torture over a life of eternal goodness and blessing, worshiping the Almighty God. So it doesn't surprise me 
than that when these demons see Jesus, listen to their response. Take note of this. Because this is that fine line between religion and a relationship. It's not enough to know about God. Even the demons know about God. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And we're going to see that exemplified here. Because look what they say. When they say, when they see him, he said, they say, uh, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus has already spoken into the situation. They recognize the authority of God and they even use, they even call on the name of God. The demons even call on the name of God and say, in the name of God, don't torture us. Which means that not only does every knee on heaven and earth bow to Jesus, but Satan and his demons have to bow at the name of Jesus. You have authority and victory over darkness. You can speak life into death at the name of Jesus. You do not have to live in depression. You do not have to live in oppression. And you certainly do not have to stay in possession or allow yourself to open up. You can allow God through the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus on the cross and conquering death through, 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 through raising three days later to speak life in darkness. And the enemy has to forfeit. Now, you, your enemy won't tell you that. I told you to circle the man. Because what will happen is the enemy will get a hold of your mind and he'll make you believe that you're a byproduct of your junk. You know, he'll make you believe that your identity, guys, I want to talk to you for a minute, but ladies, you're not too far from this conversation. Statistically, it's growing every year. The enemy then, and I believe it is absolutely demonic, will prey on your lives and they'll get in in, 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 in one of the, almost seamlessly through pornography. And you'll just get wrapped up in it and consumed in it and live in darkness. And you'll allow that to form your identity. Alcoholism is another one. Substance abuse. Where instead of choosing life and Jesus and the Holy Spirit to fill you and to be your sustenance, to be your strength, you'll turn to a bottle or, or a substance to, to fill that void. And what happens is the enemy begins to lie to you as you recognize what life looks like over death, as you see the glimmer of hope in the distance, the enemy then will begin to speak to you and say, you're too far gone. You've screwed up too much. You've committed too many sins. You've drank too much. You look at too, many, too much pornography. You've ruined your reputation in the community. You can't have life. You have to live in darkness, chained and shackled and bound. And we choose to believe those lies of the enemy because either A, we're ignorant and we don't know better, or B, we don't know where to begin. But I am here to tell you this morning that there is hope. That Jesus speaks life into death. And he gives us light in darkness. These demons say, what do you want with us? But check this out, check this out. Listen, for Jesus had already what? Said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. I want to mess with your theology a little bit, okay? You ready? This is called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is the act of God moving in your life before you're ever aware of it. It's the act of God preparing you, meeting you in the recesses of your mind and your situations and your circumstances before you identify it as God. Prevenient grace is, is stepping into your situation and giving life where 
it seems bleak at best. Prevenient grace is where God stands at the door. In Revelation 2, he stands at the door and he knocks and he says, let me in. I want in. I want to be a part of your life. I want to deliver you from darkness. I want to give you life where there's death. And he's prepared. He's working in us before we know what's going on. But the fact that God is already at work in us, and I believe in each one of us, because scripturally it says that God loved the world, that he gave his only son, and that God didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world, that does not excuse human responsibility. I need you to hear me say this. Just because Jesus is at work in us through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit with prevenient grace, we have human responsibility to accept that grace of God. He doesn't superimpose it on us. We're going to see that two more times in this story. That God doesn't superimpose his love on us. He offers it to us, extends it to us, wants us to receive it. But at the end, it's ultimately a choice that we have to make. So the fact that Jesus had already spoke life into the situation and that the demons were still in this man should lead us to believe that he hadn't received the life that Jesus had to offer yet. Do you see that? How Jesus is at work, but there wasn't a reception yet? Then Jesus demanded, I love this, I love this. What is your name? What is your name? And he's not talking to the man because he sees that the way that this man is acting isn't the image of God that he was created to act in. And he recognizes that he's acting a fool. He's acting outside of himself. So he doesn't identify the man's actions with his identity. He realizes that his actions are different than the way God made him. And he speaks to the circumstances. He doesn't say, you are demon-possessed. You are naked. You are bound. You are shackled. You are tormented. You have no business in society. You are an outcast. Your family has condemned you. Your family has moved away from you. You have no part. Does he? No, 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 no. He looks at the situation, and instead of bringing about guilt, because guilt is not of God. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit, and we should never ignore that. But guilt and shame is not of God. Jesus does not speak guilt and shame over this man's circumstances. He speaks to the circumstances, and he calls it out. Some of you this morning are acting in ways that are not bearing the image of God the way you were created to bear the image of God. And I am not here this morning to cast shame or guilt on you, but invite the Holy Spirit to convict you and to call out your shame and to, so you can address it. So you can address it. You don't have to choose to live in the graves and the tombs pretending to, that this is the best that life gets. You can choose life over darkness. You can choose, you can choose to be free from this bondage. But you got to call it out. You can't ignore it. You can't let this sin run in the dark recesses of your life. You got to quit faking it until you make it. You got to address it. You got to. Guys, 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 guys. The only way that I was ever to overcome pornography, and I mean even in ministry, even as a pastor, it has plagued me, was by coming clean with my wife and surrounding myself with godly men to hold me accountable and sign me up for covenant eyes that every time I look at anything, including the Philadelphia Eagles, how they're 7-1 and one this year with Carson Wentz, the greatest quarterback in the NFL, it's going to alert them. And it tells them, this guy is looking at NFL pornography like it's bad. The only way I was able to address the darkness of my life and deal with it was if I allowed Jesus to speak life through it by bringing it to light. It's the hardest thing I ever, I'll tell you what. I remember the day. I literally remember the day. We did a series at our church, which by the way, we're gonna do one similar come January, February, and March. All about spiritual disciplines. 
And one of the spiritual disciplines is the spirit, spiritual discipline of confession. That's how you grow stronger in your faith is through confession. Confessing your sin to God, confessing your sin one to another. And I remember that sermon. It was given by a guy who was not necessarily a prolific communicator. He wasn't dynamic. He wouldn't catch your attention. But that day, it didn't matter. God grabbed my heart and pulled me in. And I went home. To, I found my wife. And I said to my daughter, Autumn, I said, honey, can you stay with the kids for a minute? I got to take your mom. And we had to talk. And I jumped in her van. We drove to Clackamas Community College, where I had gone to school and where I had wrestled. And, and, and a community I was very familiar with. And I sat in that van. And I told my wife about the depth of my pornography addiction. And I was prepared for her to leave me. I was convinced she would leave me. And man, when I brought it to light, my wife got out of the van and I thought, oh, here we go. She didn't say a word. She got out of the van and I thought, here we go. And she walked around the back of the van to the driver's side and she opened that door and she pulled me out. And she wrapped her arms around me and said, I love you and I'm with you. And there have been times, the exception and not the rule, over the last eight years where I've slipped up and I've been able to go to my wife and say, honey, I'm sorry. The same is true of alcoholism. The same is true of women. It's a little bit different for you. Facebook affairs, emotional affairs. Going back to your Twitter-pated feelings of high school when the boyfriend would bring you flowers and write you cheesy love notes and use the, 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 record, you know, like the cassette recorders and make you a custom love, love tape. Like, you remember that. And you didn't want the tape to ever go bad, so you'd pull it out, and then you'd have to use a pencil. You'd pull it all the way out and use a pencil to tighten it so that it, you, know, you could try to restore it. And you hold, on, you hold on to how you felt back then. It's dangerous, and the only thing you can do is call it out. That's the only way to deal with this. You go with a humble heart, and you confess it to God, and you call it out in front of others. That's how you deal with sin. That's how you overcome darkness and step into light. That's how you step out of death and into the life that Jesus has for you. You've got to be honest with yourself, and you've got to be real with others, and invite people to stand with you. It's not easy. Jesus said it's not supposed to be. In this world, you will have struggles of many kinds, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I've conquered death. Guys, I want to tell you, from the bottom of my heart, you don't have to live in darkness anymore. And if you need help, come find me. Me, my staff, our leadership team, we will walk with you through it. Wives, if you're in it and you don't know what to do, you think it's hopeless and gone, there's hope for you. Alcoholism, there's hope for you. Extramarital affairs, there's hope for you. Bankruptcy, there's hope for you. Broken relationships, there's hope for you. There's hope for you. God's already at work in you. You just need to receive his grace. All right, so check this out. That's all there. And he replied, my name is Legion because there are many of us inside this man. Now hold on to the word Legion. Legion is a, is a Roman term and it represents the strongest army of Rome that there are 6,000 of the most elite soldiers in this group and that they're the most powerful group that the army has. All right, so this is a special forces. They're Legion because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged again and again not to send them to some distant place. You see that? They're begging because even though they've been unleashed on earth for a short time, they are still on a leash because God is in control. Don't you love that image? Satan's on a choke collar and you just get to... Man. Maybe it's just me, sorry. Verse 11, there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. 
Send us into those pigs, the spirit begged. Let us enter them. And theologically, I don't have a really good example for this or what's going on here other than this is also God's creation and they have to inhabit something. And so instead of inhabiting the man that God created, they go into the pigs. But I need you to understand again how unclean this is. Jesus steps into a situation where they're Gentiles. Jesus steps into a situation where the man is unclean because he's living among the dead. He's touched the dead. Jesus steps into a situation that's unclean because this man is full of blood from cutting himself. And now Jesus is stepping into a situation where Levitical laws, the laws of Moses, forbid a Jew to touch a pig. Jesus steps into taboo and he brings freedom. He meets us where nobody else will. And he speaks life through love to us. Check this out. So Jesus gave them permission. Even the enemy has to get permission from Jesus before they act. And the only time God gives permission, by the way, where God lets it happen, is the story of Job. Check this out. He gives permission. So the evil spirit come out of the man and into the pig and the entire herd of 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Now we know that this man, this demon-filled man, didn't just have one or two demons. He had at least 2,000 in him. He had at least 2,000 demons because they inhabit the entire herd of pigs. Check this out. The herdsmen who were standing on the hillside They're not going to enter the graveside. They're just watching from a distance this encounter that Jesus is having with this man. They're standing on the hillside nearby. They they, they flee to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened, and a crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, and he was sitting there, fully clothed, and he was sitting there, perfectly sane, And they were all afraid. There's two types of fear that we're going to learn about here right now. The herdsmen are sitting there and they know this man as a man who is full of death and darkness. Who cannot even be bound by shackles and chains because of the supernatural strength that comes from demon possession. They also know that their livelihood is now at stake. These are herdsmen. What do herdsmen do? They manage the flock. What's the flock? The flock is of pigs. What are the pigs good for? The pigs are their livelihood. The pigs are what they're raising up and they're feeding and caring for so that they can then sell them off and use them for meat, use them for money. This is their livelihood now. And they are afraid. They are afraid of an unrighteous fear. It's an unrighteous fear. You see, the Bible says that we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That is a righteous fear, an awe, a reverence of God. And we should be afraid of God. The awesome amazing power of God, but not in a way that keeps us from God, but it draws us even closer to God. But those who will not accept the power and the authority of Jesus in their life, they have a different kind of fear. These guys are looking at this and they're afraid because this man who was once considered dead culturally is now alive and their livelihood from pigs is now drowned in the water. So the herdsmen take off and they they tell everybody and, and a crowd gathers. Look at verse 16. Then those who had seen what had happened told others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. Now word is spreading throughout the Decapolis, throughout the ten cities. This is like Washington County. Imagine, in one moment, Jesus gets a hold of something or someone and changes, and it goes from Blair to Decama to Herman and to the surrounding 
communities of Washington County. It's spreading like wildfire, and everybody's talking about it. Everybody wants to see for themselves. Everybody wants to hear with their own ears what's going on. Verse 17, now the crowd grows, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Remember I said this was going to mess with your theology and prevenient grace and how God's already at work, but that we have human responsibility? That we choose to invite Jesus into our circumstance and our situation? He won't ever superimpose it. He'll ask us to invite him in. Though I stand at the door knocking, let me in. This man who was deaf, this man who represented darkness, begs Jesus for help and receives the power and the authority and the mercy and the grace that comes from Jesus. These others who are witnessing Jesus choose darkness over light and death over life. And they ask Jesus to leave. And listen to what Jesus does. This breaks my heart. As Jesus was getting into the boat... Notice it doesn't say Jesus stayed there and forced them to love him. Jesus stayed there and stepped into the situation even though they didn't want it. Jesus made them believe. Jesus didn't give them a choice in the matter. That's not what scripture teaches. That's not what scripture says. It says that Jesus honored their request. Prevenient grace says he stepped into their circumstances and offered them life and they chose death and Jesus honored that. As Jesus goes to step into the boat, the man who had been possessed begged to go with him. Can you see that image? Jesus and his disciples are climbing back into the boat from the Gerasene community and they're getting ready to depart back across the Sea of Galilee and this man comes running. He had an encounter with, I just, I just totally heard Tom Hanks in my head, running and running. Sorry, it's, it's my world, it's my world. This man comes running to Jesus after having an encounter with Jesus that changes his life forever. Sound familiar? To be a community of hope where we encounter Jesus and our lives are changed forever. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I've had you, I've experienced this, and I want more. I don't want more religion. I want more relationship. I don't need more deliverance. I need to live in the deliverance that you've given me. I want to come with you, Jesus. I want you to include me in your inner circle. I want to be your disciple. Uh, Very, very, very different than the rich young man who had an opportunity to go with Jesus but chose death over life. This man says, I don't know how, I don't know why, but I know that you stepped into my circumstances, you met me in my darkest my, in my darkest place, in the death of my life, and you spoke life in me, and you gave me victory over darkness, and Jesus, now that I've encountered you, I have to have more. Religion says you do it this way, you pray this prayer, you sing this song, you stand this many times, you kneel that many times, you go to this many classes, you speak this kind of way, you read that book, and Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I will speak peace into your storm, and I will give you life over death, and I will give you light in darkness. And when you experience that, you will never be the same again. You can't. There's a juxtaposition. They don't go hand in hand. They are not one and the same. You encounter Jesus, and you change. Your life is changed forever. Your life has changed forever. So church, I'm going to speak a really hard truth to you right now because I love you, okay? Because I love you. I love you. If you're standing here this morning and you believe in God, but you're wondering why your circumstances haven't changed, my question is, are you living for Jesus? Have you chosen victory over darkness? 
Have you chosen life over death? Or are you willfully choosing to step back into the circumstances that you've known for too long that you've just become comfortable with? They're horrible situations. They're horrible circumstances. You wouldn't wish it on anybody else, but it's the best you've got because it's all you've ever known. You're here this morning for a reason. Jesus is here to meet you where you're at and take you where he wants you to go. Jesus wants to give you life from death. He wants to give you victory over darkness. This morning, Jesus is saying, come to me, all you this morning who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you, it's not a mistake. You're here this morning. It's not just because you wanted to shut your wife up, guy. You're here because the Holy Spirit was prompting you. Maybe you were promised a really good lunch after church. That's just an added bonus. But I believe Provenient Grace says that God is at work in your life before you even know it. So this morning, you get to respond. This morning, you get to respond. You're going to choose to stay where you're at or you're going to step into victory, into life, into light. This man, this man says, Jesus, let me come. And Jesus says, no, go home to your family. And you tell him everything that the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. You see, this is different than a lot of Jesus' stories where he says, don't tell anybody what you've seen or heard or what you've done. Just, 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 just go be. But Jesus here says, no, 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 no. I've got work for you. You see, you've encountered life change and I've got work for you. You're going to be my missionary now. You're going to go home to your family and you're going to go home in a community that has identified you as a dark person. And the man started off to visit the 10 towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed at what he told them. In one moment, Jesus gets a hold of this man, meets him where he's at, steps into his situation and gives him life over death and this man takes an opportunity in that moment to proclaim to everybody how his life has been changed and that community because of him honoring that moment is changed. My life has changed because in one moment, my grandfather selflessly said, give me the grenades. And he crawled over while they gave cover fire. And he stood up and he pulled the pins and launched the grenades and took on fire. He lost his life so that others could live. And I'm here to talk about it today because of his sacrifice. And that's just, that, that pales in comparison to what Jesus did when he said, I will come, I will take on your burdens, your sin, I will give you cover fire, and I will stand in your stead, and it was my blood that will save you, and I'm going to die. But three days from now, I'm going to raise, the veil is going to be torn of religion, and victory is going to be yours, and you can experience eternal life. And when you walk in that eternal life, God will use you in other people's moments to give them eternal life. You see that? When you get so jacked up and excited, and I know you can. How many of you just sat there quietly yesterday as Nebraska was up and then down and then up and then down? And you sat there and you said to yourself, oh shucks, they lost again. Mike Riley's a really good guy, but it's time to get frost here. No, you were outside yourself. Are you kidding me? It's called defense. Riley, you're a really good guy. And I need you to be a mentor to them. But just step down. Go back to Oregon and take your pastor with you. How many of you ladies, when you got engaged, you tuck your finger in your pocket and you talk just with the other hand? No. You walked around like this. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, my name's Stephanie. I've never met you before, but guess what? I'm getting married. <laughs> how, 
many of you, when you got pregnant after wanting a child for so long, you wore the, your, your husband's sweatshirts and you tried to disguise it? No! You wore midriffs and showed it off. Look at woo I'm having a baby! There are moments in your life that change the trajectory of your life forever that you cannot wait to share with others. But there's only one moment that can change your eternity that you have an opportunity and an obligation to share with others that can impact the moment of their life that can change their trajectory forever. What will you do with those moments? While the number one may seem insignificant to you, I believe that the power of one can change eternity. Will you step up, step out, and step into somebody's moment today, this week, right now? Somebody right now has been holding on to their darkness and their death for too long. And this morning, you need to step up and step out and receive the love that Jesus has for you and walk in the light.